Hey everyone, and welcome to the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. I am your host, Vinny Russo. And I am your co-host, Dr. Aaron Stansfield. And we're shifting gears from all the conventional fitness narrative you hear on most fitness podcasts, as our main emphasis lies in preventative healthcare, adopting a holistic approach to nutrition, and challenging the traditional views on various fitness topics. Our mission with this podcast is to provide you with the information you need to achieve optimal health. And today we have the absolute pleasure of having Dr. Kevin Fulta on our show today, leading the way with our part two of our Food for Thought, unraveling the controversy of GMOs. Dr. Fulta is a molecular biologist who has studied agricultural biotechnology for over 30 years. He is a professor of horticultural sciences at the University of Florida and the host of Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. He has been a professor at the University of Florida since 2002, serving as chairman from 2012 to 2018. Um, what I think is impressive is that his team has authored over 100 peer-reviewed research articles, scholarly reviews, and book chapters. He has obtained several professional awards. Um, I'm not going to name all of them, but one of them includes the prestigious Cass Borlaug Agricultural Communications Award um, from 2016. And I think um, one of the least known recognized facts about him is that he's a bronze medalist in the master's division of the USA National Karate Foundation National Championship. So once again, welcome Dr. Fulta. Well, that's a really cool intro out of there. Or, I'm sorry. Do, do, do we get everything or do we leave some stuff? Uh, I, I think that's a pretty good intro right there. And mm -hmm. I, and I think it's like 130 peer-reviewed publications, but who's oh, counting? Wow. <laughs> yeah, who's counting? Right? Who's counting? <laughs> so um, let's kind of dive right into it. We did a part one where we gave our own little um, spiel on what we feel about GMOs and how they're benefiting society. And a lot of people have seen a lot of shedding a lot of negative light onto it. So can you just briefly define, because you are the expert here, can you just briefly define what GMOs actually are for our audience? Yeah, this is a really important topic because there's a lot of confusion around that. Yeah. And people have been improving plant genetics for 10,000 years or longer and doing this by just traditional breeding, by selecting, finding the one crop that survives the insects. There's my daughter. By that survives the uh, uh, the insects or survives the cold, and then using that one for future generations, and we're that way we're changing genetics. But people are sometimes referring to this as genetic modification because it is, and that really confuses things. When we're talking about G the typical GMO question, we're really referring to genetic engineering, and what genetic engineering is is where we're able to take a gene from one organism and move it to another organism with precision. So being able to move a single gene that encodes a single trait rather than um, half of one plant, half of another. Uh, the best example is from human insulin that in uh, in the 1970s, before the, in, before the 1980s, if you're a diabetic, you got insulin from a pig or a cow from pancreases that were taken off the slaughterhouse floor. Humans were able to take or scientists were able to take the gene from humans, put it in the bacteria. And have bacteria that are genetically engineered make 100% pure human insulin. That's great. It's, it's just such a huge break. So it allows us, genetic engineering is just that. It just allows us to make a new product or a new trait in a place it wasn't before. Yeah. So are GMOs safe for consumption? Like cut right to it. <laughs> well, uh, ingredients from genetically engineered plants are absolutely safe in that we have never seen any evidence of harm. In over 30 years of use, trillions of meals eaten by humans, but also animals. 
Um, livestock feed, there are animals that have lived entire lives strictly on genetically engineered feed, feed that has genetic engineered traits. So uh, no evidence of harm. And recently, um, this came to my attention because of what the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with, um, which was a very controversial statement, at least I feel like it's controversial, um, in that they said that further evaluation was needed to examine the potential health hazards of herbicides used in production of GMO foods. Um, can you talk a little bit about what led them to this conclusion and perhaps address the quality of the data um, that may have led to this kind of misinformed claim? Oh, this is a heartbreaker for me because the AAP is a really trusted organization. And uh, I read this article and I could not believe what I was reading. And I wrote to the editor and said, we need to correct this. And the editor said, well, you can put a note in the bottom of the website. Um, it, it's been absolutely horrendous that this happened. Um, but what the AAP wrote was that, uh, that, that there's controversy around this topic when there really isn't. The scientific consensus is that the ingredients that come from these crops are safe right. and that that includes the crops which are resistant to the herbicide glyphosate. So what this means is a farmer can plant a field of corn or soybeans or canola, um, sugar beets and, uh, and let them germinate and grow with the weeds, then spray the herbicide, kill the weeds, but leave the, the crop. It's perfect. Then the crop grows and the crop shades out the weeds from further on. So it's a really nice strategy that has led to uh, less tilling and less soil use. And the herbicide has always been considered safe. The problem is in the last 10 years, the folks who don't like genetic engineering have switched the goalpost from genetic engineered plants to the herbicide that's used on them and have made a lot of claims that just don't hold water. Um, so the AAP is focused okay, we have this herbicide that we're going to say is dangerous rather than the plants themselves. And that's where they really manufactured a very cherry-picked and biased fear campaign. Yeah, and just uh, when you said the word glyphosate, like I get oats that are glyphosate-free, right? So are they genetically modified? I mean, I don't care. I, I don't mind eating genetically modified. No, they're not. Are they just, just no, there's, there's just like, no glyphosate on? The oats are not. Uh, are not genetically engineered. So oats sometimes, oats and other grains are sometimes dried down with uh, glyphosate at the end of their, uh, at the end of before harvest. So what this means is it's it's best when farmers can have uniformity across the, uh, across the desiccated grain. So grain that dries down. Mm -hmm. And if it's uh, it, wet, if it's um, uh, humid, then it isn't terribly uniform and you don't get the same quality of, of grain from that. And so it's better to use something like glyphosate or they used to use other herbicides to kill the plants and that way they dry down. Um, but you have residues that come along with it. Uh, there's um, glyphosate has been used on some grains. I'm not sure on oats if they even are in most, I think that, that most of the large oat producers don't use glyphosate, especially in certain areas. But uh, it has become a selling point to say glyphosate free, basically yep. built around the manufactured controversy. Interesting. Um, I think, so I actually read the review and I think from a, you know, I was trained in, in looking at data and research and, you know, what's a good quality study and what's a bad quality study and um, what's a good review, what's a bad review. And I think for the lay population, I can see how reading this review could be quite damning. So in other words, when I read it, thinking if I didn't have this research background, I think I would 
take this on its surface and say, wow, GMOs are um, need to be studied further. I don't know if they're safe. And especially when you're saying in reference to your child, right? So these are parents who are concerned about the food sources that they're going to give their children. So can you talk a little bit more about um, the, the data that they used in particular and what those pitfalls might be from a research perspective, why they might be wrong? Yeah, do we have an hour? Yeah, this, this, <laughs> this has been a really egregious review, and it really bothers me a lot because it's a lot of, uh, I, I'm going to use this review in my classes as to illustrate the students, here's how you don't do science. It is a, uh, as I mentioned in a recent thing I wrote, um, the ultimate cherry picking in the orchard of science. They only cite the work that backs their narrative. So they went into the into this review saying, here's our conclusion that these are dangerous and the herbicide is dangerous. Let's go find anything that we can possibly pull from the literature that might support that. And it's, it's inverse science. It's not the way we do things. That's what they did. And some of the great examples, like they, they mentioned a, a study uh, in, uh, in women in Puerto Rico who had shorter gestation time. And if you look at the data from those papers, yeah, there's shorter gestation times, which, which to a physician, a pediatrician, would be an indicator of a potential problem, right? Because something with the placenta or who knows, a shorter gestation time. And but the shorter gestation time might be days, might be a day, maybe a couple days. But then all of the other metrics of, of fetal development are the same in terms of head circumference and, and child weight. And then when you drill into the population they studied, the exposure group to glyphosate who um, had the, the shorter gestation time also were younger women and also women who've had previous pre uh, short term pre preterm births. So right there, it tells you, you know, there's limitations to how you can discuss those data. And the authors of the original study said that, you know, they said we have a lot of limitations here, but the authors of the AAP review ignored them. They also didn't, and, and other things they cited where if we combine data from multiple studies, we see some loose associations between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yet the criticisms of those pieces and other data, the best data out there from the agricultural research study, which is 54,000 applicators with high exposure, shows no association, but they conveniently left those data out. Right. So, so those well, are the major problems. And I always say, you know, association does not prove causation, right? Um, so I think that the, you know, studies designs that they used for their data and their cherry picking was weak to begin with. But you don't see that unless you dig further, right? Unless you look at the research they looked at to, to put together their review. Um, so that being said, can you talk about maybe um, the research that has been done on GMOs that does say, hey, you know, this isn't, these, you know, products are safe for consumption. Produce is safe for consumption. Yeah, so, so let me jump on that last part first when we say produce is safe, that there is a very common per, uh, misconception that you go to the grocery store produce aisle and everything in there is genetically engineered, when really none of it is. You might find sweet corn. Um, that's about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the things that are in your diet that are genetically engineered are ingredients from corn, sugar beets, um, soybeans and canola. So it's oils, it's the starches, it's the sugars. It's the ingredients that go into processed foods that are in the center of the grocery store 
not the stuff in the produce aisle. Uh, the produce aisle, the only thing you, and you can't find them, uh, white russet potatoes, which are very hard to find, mostly used in uh, processing, uh, Arctic apples, so in a type of apple that comes from Canada that is uh, non-browning, and um, one other, Hawaiian papayas. Pretty much everything else is is not genetically engineered. Thanks so, for that clarification. I think yeah, that's important, right? Well, when are we, we going to actually lose papayas that were going extinct? And then didn't this sort of save it, right? Well, uh, yeah, sort of. Uh, the Hawaiian papaya industry uh, is very important culturally. And it's very important to the Hawaiian Islands for many reasons, both as an export, but also because of cultural significance of papaya. And uh, it, it showed up on the big island from it was growing. They had problems with papaya ring spot virus on other islands, but they weren't on the main island. And when it started showing up in Puna in 1987, this area near the volcano, um, a major, major papaya growing area, they said we need a solution. And Dr. Dennis Gonsalves, who grew up on, on Kauai, uh, he uh, is a professor at, uh, with USDA and Cornell who came up with the solution of genetically engineering the papaya to resist the virus. And it saved an industry. And in, in recent years, when anti-GMO folks in papaya, where they're quite rabid, um, where I've actually been there and had good times with them, um, they say we want to ban all genetically engineered crops, and the papaya farmers say, "Wait a minute, what what, what about us?" Yeah, and they end up not doing it. So that, that's a great success story of genetic engineering. Yeah, I mean, you had a species that was about to go extinct through a virus. You genetically modified it. It was able to sustain it and become be resilient. And like we know that the more diversity we have on this earth, the better it is. The more resilient we all can be. Um, so that just proves another point. Like, I didn't even think of that, um, to how GMOs are really, really beneficial, but, um, how many GMOs are FDA approved? Yeah. So, uh, uh, there's only, um, a couple that have, so the things that have gone through the regulatory process are, um, corn, soybeans, uh, beets, uh, sugar beets, uh, for sugar and canola. Those are the main ones that show up in the human diet as, as ingredients, uh, is oils and starches, as I mentioned, but also alfalfa for cattle feed. Um, uh, the zucchini, there were some that were genetically engineered. You can still buy them, but in very limited. They're also virus resistance like the papaya. Um, the Hawaiian papaya and um, the Arctic apple and the, and the white russet potato. Those are the, that's the suite of currently genetically engineered approved crops. Do you think um, if there wasn't, Fear mongering about GMOs that this technology would be advanced, so to speak, and that we would have uh, more um, access to yeah, yeah. some this, of these this, qualities. Yeah, this is the part that breaks my heart. You know, I work in a university and I work in a discipline with outstanding scientists who got into academic science to solve problems for people and the environment. You know, we wanted to tackle food security, we wanted to tackle environmental problems and climate change, all the things we want to deal with. And we come up with solutions, but we can't use them because of public pushback and the high cost of deregulation. And so we, we the, the laboratory shelves and the garbage cans and autoclaves are full of uh, shattered dreams of great ideas that never mm -hmm. came to fruition. And, and I would say thousands of them. We yeah. know we can increase vitamin content. We know we can have crops that survive drought. We know we can have crops that are less dependent on fungicide. Right. But, you know, fungicides are cheap and they're approved. So use those. 
I'd rather not use them, but you can't approve, get a genetically improved, uh, genetically engineered, uh, you know, strawberry approved. It just, it just, the cost is too high and the industry doesn't want it. They don't want people boycotting their product. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately it's misinformation like this, like this article that came out that really limits that the, the science moving forward, in my opinion. Um, can you just speak to the safety of pesticides in general? And I know there's, um, you know, some of the, the article calls into um, question organic versus conventional um, food sources. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's a little bit sad because I, I appreciate organic farmers a lot, and we use a lot of organic farming techniques on what is really a conventional farm. So we 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 borrow from their technologies because they work sometimes for certain applications. Um, the pesticide got a bad name because stuff that we used to use back in the 50s, 60s, 40s, whatever back then was environmentally persistent or potentially had human health ramifications. So the things we think of like DDT, organophosphates, you know, these things were persistent in the environment. The organochlorides, the carbamates, these were all pesticides that were environmentally persistent and had human health impacts, no question. And we switched away from that stuff. By, by comparison, today's pesticides like fungicides, so pesticides are fungicides, herbicides, insecticides, anything that's in the side fits under pesticide. All those things are pests. You may put um, two or three ounces per acre, or with uh, glyphosate, the herbicide, you use 750 grams per acre. So this is very, very, very minor stuff that because it targets, and with time, we've gotten better from things that just are broad spectrum and kill all the insects or kill all the fungus or kill all the weeds, the things that can selectively target specific metabolic nodes in fungal or or plant biology and um, are virtually non-toxic outside of that. So the things that target uh, ergosterol synthesis, the, the things that make cell walls and, fun, and fungi, those are very limited toxicity in, in animals. Uh, glyphosate, as I mentioned before, targets a specific enzyme in plants that isn't present in animals and does a very good, it is very uh, limited toxicity because of that. So pesticides have gotten better. The dose makes the poison. And we very clearly see that uh, we understand pesticides and their pharmacological fates with resolution we've never had before. So things are looking rel very low risk from current pesticide applications. Yeah, just, just to jump out, um, because you guys talked about organic. And I know um, a lot of clients, she calls them patients that come to us, you know, are like, hey, do I need to eat organic? And I'm kind of like, no, not, you don't have to. You don't have to spend the extra money um, to do that. Is it better than conventional or is it not? So it, there's a couple of ways to answer that. So let me start with the first one. There's no quantitative dis difference between organic and conventional produce when you uh, compare it side by side for its nutrition. If you see differences in nutrition, it's because of other things, maybe, you know, the, the maybe other factors, you know, and, and, and maybe sometimes on an organic farm, you do have something that's better quality, but you also have better quality out of a conventional farm sometimes. So, uh, you know, where we do it, we use specific fertilizer that we can't use in organic because it's specifically made for our ground and our crops. So, uh, so there's no quantifiable difference that's consistently says organic outputs or products are better than conventional. When you look at uh, 
um, exposure to pesticides. Organic pesticides, organic production uses pesticides. No question, you have to, uh, especially in places like Florida. Um, it's just natural poison. <laughs> so yeah. it's a, it is a natural toxin that targets bacteria or fungus or insects. Uh, things that are purified from chrysanthemums, you know, uh, nicotine and caffeine are pesticides. They're made by the plant to protect the plant. So when you're using things like spinosad or um, copper, you know, we use a lot of copper in organic production, uh, something called BT, which is a dipel, which is a uh, anti-caterpillar uh, uh, compound that's very effective. But the problem is all of the organic strategies are more expensive not as effective and have to be applied more labor to apply them. Yep. And so this is where the conventional strategies become more attractive. Yeah, because I'm, I'm under an impression to where it's really like the organics actually have a list of natural and synthetic that they can use, right? There's an approved list, uh, but really it comes down to, look, you get, you buy produce or yeah, you just wash your food, right? <laughs> like if you wash it good enough, you should be, you should be okay touched on a very very important point where it's like if you do an apple side by side organic versus inorganic um guess what they're going to be the same in terms of calories sugar whatever depending on the size it's going to add a lot of clarification because you see people out there and just like organic means like their initial thought is no chemicals organic means it's all natural and like they don't think about the other stuff kind of like you just mentioned yeah, yeah it kind of has a halo around it doesn't it and, and, effect, yeah, yeah and, 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 and I like I like this in that, you know, organic farmers, my hat, my hat is off to them and they have to work a lot harder than we do to produce the same produce because it's it's a lot of work to be an organic farmer. You're working with one hand tied behind your back in terms of the strategies you can use and the genetics you have access to. And uh, so I give them a lot of credit. What I always tell people is eat fruits and vegetables, eat fruits and vegetables, pound the table, eat fruits and vegetables. If it's organic and it looks good and you want to pay for it, buy it, you know, go to farmer's markets, support your local farmers. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the stuff that was picked yesterday is probably better in nutrition than the stuff that was picked, um, you know, three weeks ago in California and shipped across the country. That is really the better value rather than worrying about organic versus conventional choose the stuff that was picked closer um your higher levels of folate vitamin c vitamin a vitamin e all these things definitely decrease after harvest so you just get a better quality more recent product when you have that kind of arrangement yeah i i think and to go back to what the aap is saying i think that um it's a dangerous statement right because a lot of families one are going to be afraid to to feed um their family's produce to begin with and then a lot of people that may not be able to afford organic um, produce may be, um, you know, again, there's fear mongering around that statement. And so they may avoid produce altogether. And I'm just wondering, you've been in this industry for over 30 years. Um, would you feed your child produce? And um, would some of that be um, GMO produce? Yeah, I, I don't worry about it. I, we have the safest food supply in human history. And there's no question about that. My biggest concerns are things like um, giving her a bottle that she was uh, that she maybe fell asleep with and maybe it sat out at room temperature for too long. Yeah, That's right. a much bigger risk, right? Um, and the biggest risks are uh, bacterial and uh, foodborne illness are the bigger biggest problems. Much much more than anything from genetics or pesticides. 
So those are the places we should be focusing our food safety is, is proper storage of food. But back to your point, there's no question that when you tell people, like in table one of that AAP review, they say a list of things that are genetically engineered, apples and potatoes and papayas. There's one apple you can't get. So now a family has just eliminated apples from what they're going to feed their kids. And apples, they, they last a long time. They're nutritious. They got great fiber. They all kinds of good stuff. And you can cover them with peanut butter, whatever you want. But now families are going to say, I don't want that because the AAP says this is probably dangerous for my kid. Well, not only that, but even to allude to the produce part, because if you're not feeding your kid, then you think, should I be eating that as produce? And fiber is a huge thing from from a prevention standpoint. Like in, in medicine, we think about fiber preventing many chronic diseases, um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, you know, cardiovascular disease. Uh, so there's all kinds of diseases that could be prevented by increasing fiber intake. And um, I just think it's such a dangerous statement to make to scare people away from consuming produce. Yeah, yeah. And and, and we and we know that that happens. We know that uh, exclusion labels that when you tell people no antibiotics, no hormones, non-GMO, uh, that if they can't afford that product that has all those exclusion labels, they won't buy the other one, even though it never had GMO or, uh, or antibiotics or hormones. Uh, they uh, the labeling issues are so deceptive and unfortunately scare people away from perfectly good food. And, and that's what the AAP article um, kind of does. To, it's not going to just mislead pa uh, patients or families. It'll mislead some physicians, too, who are busy studying their own fields and rely on the AAP to provide them with a synthesis that they could trust. And now physicians that don't have time to go back through all those articles are going to steer their uh, patients in the wrong direction. I mean, that, you know, first do no harm, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And even the physicians who do understand the research, it's it takes time out of their clinical practice to now tell their patient why this is okay for consumption and why they should be, you know, getting their fiber intake, um, you know, grams per day um, instead of avoiding them. Yeah, so you look, you just look at the current, look, look at past research and current research, and you see that uh, fruits, vegetables, it, it all supports optimal health, right? It all supports getting better with your health. Now it's a complete 180, and it's like, wait a minute, now who do we trust? Because my doctor, who I'm going to, knows more than I do. I trust what they say. They're saying, don't eat fruits and vegetables. What am I going to do? I'm probably not going to eat fruits and vegetables. But let's get away a little bit from this whole negative side. Let's add some positive light here. Um, can you elaborate on like the nutritional enhancements that GMOs can actually bring to crops and how this can benefit some consumers? Well, this is really another pie in the sky idea because it's we have never had a crop approved for a nutritional trait other than something called golden rice, which has been approved in North America, USA and Canada, we'll never use it or sell it here because we don't have vitamin A deficiency, but it has been approved here. Um, vitamin, so it's possible to biofortify crops. We know a lot about um, uh, metabolism and vitamin synthesis. And probably one of the best ones was, can you give crops, which world food staples are, are, are white and starchy, right? You got potatoes, rice, corn, wheat, um, cassava potatoes, uh, Matoke bananas in Africa, they're very low in nutrient density with respect to protein, vitamin A, and certain vitamins and minerals. 
And every day we have something like uh, 35,000 people will die today because of a lack of uh, vitamin A, zinc, and, and um, uh, protein and uh, iron. You know, just very easy to correct problems. Yeah. And uh, you can biofortify plants to have higher levels of these compounds, these important compounds. The best one's vitamin A. It's been done by putting um, beta carotene, the orange yep. stuffing carrots, um, the genes. That's why it's golden rice, yeah. Yeah, it's been put in golden rice, but it's also been put in the soybeans, potatoes, oh, wow. uh, so many other things. Uh, that's a great one. There's vitamin B6 can be added, um, uh, higher levels of iron, higher levels of zinc. Uh, all these things have been done, demonstrated, but those ideas are still on the shelf. But, uh, uh, golden rice was approved in the Philippines and maybe Bangladesh this year. Um, okay. They're growing it in the Philippines, but they put a, uh, uh, because of protests against it by Western interests, by USA and uh, uh, European protesters have now not allowed that to reach the food supply. So this idea that can correct vitamin A deficiency, the blindness and immune problems and death that comes with it is now being formally blocked by folks like Greenpeace and other organizations that uh, that don't realize how bad this is. That's that's unfortunate. Um, I think, you know, to allude to that point in the dangers and maybe some like the environmental working group, for example, um, I feel like would be, you know, an opponent of, of, of such technology. Can a lot of the worry comes from the, perhaps the cancer risk. Do you know of any long-term ongoing studies um, looking at the effects of GMOs? That's a tricky one because there's no plausible reason why it would cause cancer. So you're adding a, a gene or let's say a BT toxin, which is the thing that, that may, allows the plant to make the organic pesticide rather than have to apply the organic pesticide. Um, the, the BT protein is broken down by the body like any other protein, it's nutrition. And, and that's it. Um, there's no reason that you would think it would cause cancer. And furthermore, no evidence that it does. In any kind of feeding studies, even with uh, rodents that are cancer models, you don't see any higher incidence. And that's been observed across all of these engineered plants um, that it, it's it's a very rigorous test. So there's no reason that it would. There's no evidence that it does. Is there so, has there been any cases of where like there might have been some allergic reaction, so to speak, to a GMO GMO or no? Yeah. So there, there was one really good example of this that came. But this was uh, it was a um, example of a of a of why the system works. In Brazil, or no, they uh, they engineered the uh, a high methionine protein, so high amino acid. I think it was methionine um, uh, protein out of hazelnuts. Is that, is that yeah, hazelnuts into soybeans? Because wow. it, when you're feeding livestock, you have to supply ex exogenous either lysine or methionine, one of the amino acids. And so this was a high methionine protein that was uh, that allowed uh, that delivered this for animal health. Well, it turns out that this also raised allergic reactions, um, at least in vitro, where they were able to show that this would have been a problem if it was used in human food. Um, it never was released, never happened, and it was caught ahead of time. So uh, a great example of the success of the system. Um, so my next question is, do you think it would um, be best if there is clear and transparent labeling of GMO products um, in order to inform the public? 
Yeah, that's a tricky question because the, the I always am a big fan of transparency. I'm totally on board about letting people know what they're eating. The problem is if you start putting something that can be construed as a warning label when there's nothing, there's no risk. You know, like if, if you're allergic to peanuts, you got to know peanuts are in that product. Yeah, that right. must be on the label. We put things on labels that people need to know about. If there's no risk from a genetically, from an ingredient, from a genetically engineered crop, that soybean oil is soybean oil, whether it comes from a G soybean or a regular soybean or a, or a organic soybean, it's all oil. It's the same exact stuff. It's chemically indiscernible one from the other. So why would we need to label one of them special? The main reason that's a problem is because, the, and this is, I blame on the activist groups. They said, once we get it labeled, we tell people it's poison, that the label means skull and crossbones, um, and avoid it. Yeah. So the label really would provide, at least the label they wanted, um, would have really potentially been used as a way to scare people and further misinformation. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because you're telling people exactly what they need to see. But then if you have something like um, GMO-free, right, let's just say, yeah. some might look at it and say, oh, well, GMOs are bad. Like now I can't have GMOs. Like it's, it's a double-edged sword there. Um, yeah. Let's go a little bit more personal here. So I want to hear your response to this because I know my response. But sure. um, most people who choose to avoid GMOs, they say they they choose to avoid them because it's not quote unquote natural. So how would you respond to this? Uh, there's nothing that you eat that's natural. Uh, <laughs> the the, um, the and I love these stories. I, I'm a, one of my favorite things is talking about crop domestication. So uh, humans were were. Uh, hunters and gatherers. They had wild weeds that were out there and found some of them edible. And they would take some of these back to wherever they lived, uh, wherever they you know, would move as nomadic groups. And uh, they realized that the seeds that fell off them grew and they grew into those same crops they liked. And now this idea of changing genetics was born. Humans mm -hmm. took plants from where they were belonged, planted them where they didn't belong and selected the ones that had better products and maybe didn't kill them right? <laughs> the ones that, that you ate and uh, didn't make you sick. And, and so we made crops, we invented crops from nature. And uh, nature kind of gave us some dud stuff that we shaped into modern crops. Hmm. So um, not a lot out there that's terribly natural. There's no natural cows, there's no natural pigs, there's no net, there's wild antecedents that, that we changed over time. Yeah, it's almost like, um, like the history of a dog. Right, because yeah. if you look at it and how everything was crossbred to create the the type of traits that they wanted, um, and the look that they uh, that we wanted, so yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a great example. You know, dog domestication is you know you, you were a gray wolf ten thousand years ago, and now you're a chihuahua. <laughs> you know, it, it it's it it's not natural, but it's also something that we really benefit from. You know, and crops are no different. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, I see a logical fallacy in that people will consume alcohol or or things that might be toxic to their liver, and then they are, you know, afraid to consume GMOs. How do you address that logical fallacy, or what do you think is the best approach to address that? Well, the, the yeah, I, I love the idea that you have non-GMO vodka. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, the, here's people who are sweating it out about um, a uh, uh, maybe a few parts per billion of a probable of a disputed probable carcinogen right. um, that's dissolved in 
uh, 40% of a known carcinogen, <laughs> you know, or whatever, or, you know, this is, what would that be? Um, 40 million parts per billion yeah. of a known carcinogen. Uh, right. More higher than that, 400,000. Anyway, you know where I'm going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's funny. But the main thing is, is that when we talk to people about this, it's about human health. It's about animal health. It's about um, access to quality food. It's about calories for the food insecure, high nutrition for this food insecure. Those are the things that we want. And genetic engineering is one part of the way we can do it. Right. It also involves uh, better chemistry, better farm, um, uh, today farming with drones and sensors and all the good things we do there, software and satellites. All these things are working together to allow us to grow more with less input, fewer chemicals, less land, less fertilizer, less water, conserve resources, make more food. That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, and, that, and the way I'm seeing it too, my dog just took the whole, <laughs> took everything with him. Um, so the, the way I'm seeing this too is like, you take, how can people protest something to where if you take genetically modified crops, for example, that could survive food deserts and you're bringing food to that area to help support people, how can people be against that? Like in my head, it does, just doesn't make sense. Um, but can you do us all a favor and just, you know, have us leave on a positive note about GMOs? <laughs> well, I, I think that the best times are, are ahead of us. And I think the biggest places where you'll see genetic engineering changing people's lives will be in medicine. Um, sickle cell disease affects almost 100,000 African-Americans or people of African origin, I should say, um, not just Americans. And uh, it's a painful disease, debilitating, uh, leads to premature death. Um, horrible, horrible when you have it, especially the penetrant forms. Um, there are at least a few people today who are cured because of genetic engineering. And that's amazing. Um, and, and this is something that will, where medicine starts to uh, maybe not cure cancer, but allows us to live with different cancers rather than them being deadly. Um, where medicine is being, uh, where people are surviving brain tumors, where people are surviving other uh, medical cases that were previously problematic, we're now going to see genetic engineering as a solution that touches all of our families. And from that, we'll see an extension into crops and more acceptability. That plus more surgical techniques in genetic engineering like CRISPR-Cas9, gene editing, all these things, they're not uh, solving a problem the way we used to. They're much more finesse. Um, and people are less objectionable to that. And so I think the combination of human healthcare breakthroughs that use genetic engineering coupled to um, more finesse in the way we do it, uh, and also uh, disaster fatigue, all the things that they said are going to happen uh, in the uh, you know 90s and, and 2000s about how the disaster that's going to come from GMO foods um, never happened. Mm -hmm. And I think people are just worn out by that fear-mongering. So all those things together, I think, will usher in an area of safer food. So there's a happy note. That's awesome. Yeah, and there's two really good um, Netflix documentaries that we watched um, on CRISPR technology. She's oh, in love with yeah. that. Well, She's well in sickle that. cell, the technology they're speaking of, it was just recently approved by the FDA to yeah. um, the CRISPR technology to help with sickle cell. Um, I'm a cancer survivor myself. And so even like with CAR T therapy, um, yeah. that, you know, when I had chemotherapy years and years ago, I would have likely died if I didn't have a bone marrow transplant. Um, thank goodness the chemotherapy worked on me. But, um, now if I got it again, 
I wouldn't have a donor. And now with CAR T therapy, for example, and a lot of that is on the, um, you know, horizon for genetic engineering. Um, I'm, I might be able to stick around if it ever reoccurred, you know? And so yeah, well, congratulations. Me, you know, yeah, yeah, thank you. But to me, this technology is so important. And I think any kind of fear mongering about it is um, just misinformed. And, and that's why we wanted to do this podcast to let people know that this technology is so needed. Mm -hmm. And um, and there are safeties in place to make sure there's so many regulatory agencies that are involved in this um, to make sure that it is safe. Um, and I think that's very important. Yeah. No, excellent point. I, I I think this is the way that we warm up to this stuff when it really starts to solve problems for people and they see these remarkable technologies. I have a prediction that uh, sickle cell clinics will open up like Jiffy Lubes, uh, yeah. that CAR T cell clinics will open up and, and, and you'll be able to have these technologies, which right now still are pretty specialized. But I think as we start to learn more about how to get around the um, some of the edges of them and kind of make them more generic and available. I think you're going to see this be a revolutionary technology that touches so many families. And I, I just love that. Yeah. Well, look, I'm a big investor. So if you want to go in on this, be the front of the wave. I mean, I'm looking for it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I appreciate those sentiments. Unfortunately, I never really got in on the ground floor. A lot of these technologies that are already very well capitalized and, and very exciting. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, if, if you are an investor, buying a little bit of some of these uh, biotech ETFs probably ain't a bad idea because so many of these tech technologies have potential. The, the, the sad part for companies and investors, which is great for consumers, is so many of these technologies work so well, you only have to buy them once. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have, if it works great for sickle cell, you won't have any return customers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so... Yeah. Great for the once you cure the problem, then what do you do? You know, so Dr. Folder, why don't you just do us a favor and let us know where we could actually find you and find all this information and listen to you and and interact with you and ask you questions if we have any. Yeah, I'm, I'm always able. I'm always happy to answer questions in any format. Um, I'm on Twitter or X at Kevin Folta, K-E-V-I-N-F-O-L-T-A. Um, I'm also available by email. You can find my email address all over activist websites and on Alex Jones. Uh, so I don't, don't have to Alex put it Jones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, oh, they don't like me over there. And then um, uh, you also can uh, uh, reach me by, by listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, which is uh, eight and a half years in now and weekly episodes. Uh, awesome. I've been on a brief hiatus, but we'll come back in January of 2024, where we are now. Okay, great. Which is well, fantastic. Dr. Bolton, thank you so much for coming on and giving us all this information. We really appreciate your time. Um, you really definitely, hopefully, open up um, the, the eyes, what well, ears, because they'll be listening to us, but hopefully open up their eyes to something that in the future, it's going to come out to where, hey, it's doing good. It's not doing harm. It's only going to benefit, especially if we keep advancing with those technologies. Yeah, you bet. We scratched the surface. It's it's a really exciting time. And thank yeah. you very much for helping me share it. On behalf of Balanced Bodies, we just want to say thank you for joining us on this episode of the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. We are committed to bringing valuable content. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd greatly appreciate it if you can take a moment and like it and leave a five-star review. On Apple, just go to the show, scroll down to the bottom and rate it there. If you're on Spotify, go to the show's page, click the three dots, and you can rate it there as well. 
And if you believe in the power of knowledge, share this episode on your social media to try and get the information out there to as many people as possible. And as you navigate your own path towards better health, remember that Balanced Bodies is forever in your corner. See you all next week. The podcast content may include discussions of medical topics and health-related information. However, the information provided should not be considered exhaustive or complete, and it should not be relied upon as a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.